that concept aligns so much, I think, with my own thinking as a psychologist, because as I was seeing patients for years and clients, I would oftentimes talk to them where they would come in in their most vulnerable states. I argued with them in the same way that Cornel West argues with us to say that we should never allow misery to have the last word. So the fact that they were in my office really talking about their piece was great. But I also told them that you will never find out how strong you can be until your moment of greatest vulnerability, because strength is not measured at the zero line forward. Strength is measured when you got to go all the way back to a negative two, four, six, eight in your life and then come all the way back into this side to a positive eight. That's where you find out how strong you can be. And that was another principle that was reinforced in that book on love leadership that I think would serve administration as well. Uh, You will never find out how strong you can be, even as a university leader, until you get to your moment of greatest vulnerability. Welcome to Innovating Together, a podcast produced by the University Innovation Alliance. This is a podcast for busy people in higher education who are looking for the best ideas, inspiration, and leaders that will help you improve student success. I'm your host, Bridget Burns. Each week, I partner with a journalist to have a conversation with a sitting college president, chancellor, system leader, or someone in the broader ecosystem who's really an inspiring leader. And the goal is to have a conversation to distill their perspective and their insights gathered from their leadership journey. Our hope is that this is inspiring and gives you something to look forward to each week. This episode, my co-host is Inside Higher Ed co-founder and CEO, Doug Lederman. I'm joined today uh, by President Thomas Parham of California State University, Dominguez Hills. Uh, he's been there, uh, been in that role for almost five years, since 2018. After spending uh, several decades uh, at the other big system in California, the University of California, Irvine. Welcome, President Parham. Thank you so much. Hello to Bridget and to Doug. Thank you for having me. I'm honored and flattered to be here. Well, we're really excited to learn from you today. And uh, for those of you who are not familiar, um, yes, you were previously at UC Irvine, but I think one of the pieces that we really find interesting is just how deep and rich your academic background has been. And also you have extensive experience in student affairs. Now getting a chance to serve as a president in this unique moment in time, it seems like this is perfectly prepared for this moment in terms of navigating and leading an institution as interesting as CSU Dominguez Hills. So we're going to hopefully kick it off by just hearing from you a little bit about your journey and what's been most useful. So the first thing I want to ask you is you have had an extensive experience and and a background, and I want to know if there was any one experience you've had that you think most accurately prepared you for the presidency? And if the answer is none, that's fine too. The experience that probably prepared me for the presidency goes back to my time, I think, at the University of California, Irvine, where I served as a senior executive on the cabinet of both uh, Michael Drake, uh, who was chancellor then, as well as Howard Gilman. Uh, So being a vice chancellor of student affairs portfolio is huge. 32 units, maybe 1,250 staff, maybe $230 million budget. I mean, it's bigger than some uh, universities, just my portfolio in student affairs. So that was certainly part of that. It also included fundraising and philanthropy. And uh, folk may know that I come out of the academic side of the house when I started my career. When I came to Irvine, they were clear that your being here goes beyond doing just the administrative things you can feel free to do your teaching and your clinical work. So 
I've done really a combination of those five things. I've done teaching, uh, my clinical work, my scholarship, been able to consult far and wide, and then of course the administration. So it's that versatility that is probably best prepared me. And lastly, I'll say it goes back to an old adage I got from my first mentor, who was the great Dr. Joe White, whose picture I have behind me here uh, that you can see in the corner of the screen. What Dr. White taught me, he said the key to mental health, particularly for a young black man, is always having a broad range of choices and options. So you never know where your opportunities will be, but prepare yourself to be excellent across multiple domains. So when I went to grad school, when I've uh, accessed the professional uh, plateaus for opportunity, it has always been about trying to produce excellence across multiple domains. And that's helped to prepare me, I think, for the rigors of doing this university presidency now. Some of the key decision points that that people face as they move through the academy is, you know, especially if they come up on the academic side, is to leave and go into administration. And I'm curious if you can sort of give us a sense. I mean, there's obviously a historical path where people go from professor to department chair to dean, et cetera. When did you make the, the pivot and what were the what were the choices you made? What were the what were the factors that influenced you in making that move? I should say, I think when I started out my career at the University of Pennsylvania, loved the position, even though I didn't find out until after I arrived that I was the first, they said, African-American academic psychologist Penn had ever hired in its 200-something year history after it was founded by Ben Franklin. Scary thought, but okay. But I love doing the teaching. I love doing the uh, the work. But I was only doing really a couple of little administrative tasks, being mostly academic and scholarship when I shifted and took the opportunity to come back to the University of California, Irvine. It was literally like coming home because I did my undergraduate work there. But also they were prepared to recognize not only that I had something to contribute administratively, but also they would uh, said, your being here extends more than just your administrative tasks. We want you to contribute to the full measure of this university experience, uh, which included mentoring students. We want you to continue to teach and we'll provide you time to do your scholarship and research. So I was doing the full range of things from academic instruction, administration, clinical work, teaching, and my scholarship and doing consulting every now and then. So it was that versatility that was there. The administration piece was very critical in that because you're managing units, working with people, and actually more tactical in terms of delivering service to folk. But I try to remind folks that even being a psychologist, as I was working in mental health centers and seeing patients, that my clinical work kept my teaching sharp because it was the broadest application about what I was teaching in the classroom theoretically. But my teaching kept my practice sharp and my administration sharp because it was the way to apply the theoretical concepts that were the conceptual template that I used to create. And you could then manifest those every day in the way in which you both serve the student and the campus community, but also worked in just providing administrative services to the entire campus community. But I loved it. I love that you're modeling a path to going deep and broad in terms of uh, some folks can just be super focused and narrow, but the deep throughout the administration, your experience and also academically, I just feel like this is a good model because we always ask for good examples for leadership pathways that that will help people kind of think differently about the approach to the presidency. So 
I love that. But I also want to ask you a, a pretty basic question, which is, so we've just covered that you have quite a few things that have prepared you for the presidency. We both had a chance to work closely with Michael Drake and uh, respect him immensely. But I'm wondering if you had to give yourself advice, if you had to go back to 2018 when you first get named, or if you, you think about when you step into that role, is there any one thing that was most surprising to you about the presidency, despite all the preparation and all the exposure you've had to these leadership roles? Is there any one thing that people should really think about preparing for or that was just caught you off guard? I don't. Yeah, it's a good question, Bridget. I don't know that it necessarily was a surprise because I think I got prepared pretty well throughout from my first mentor to Horace Mitchell, uh, who was the vice chancellor at Irvine, who then recruited me to come back when I was a professor at Penn to when I later became the vice chancellor under Michael Drake to moving forward. But working with Michael Drake was like watching, I think, what is a consummate administrator and educator who himself was a hybrid being both a National Academy of Sciences physician uh, as well as a, a senior administrator who was just magnificent in the way in which he worked. And Michael Drake taught me a fundamental lesson. He said, there's a big difference between A and A plus. And first I had to take a back and then I thought about that. I mean, I said, you know, you're right. It's about always going that extra mile to produce the quality, to be able to serve other people in a different way, to be able to achieve a level of excellence that goes beyond even what people expect. And that certainly has served me well, I think, in moving into the presidency. But what's also true about leadership, and this is, I think, what's true about my own path. I've always been, Bridget and Doug, a, a reluctant leader. I remember Andrew Young, one of Dr. King's disciples, argued one time, I saw him in a, in a, in a presentation, a speech he did down south. He said he always learned to distrust people who always sought leadership. Because if you really understood what leadership entailed and what it was about, you'd be a reluctant leader. But you always understand that you would then yield to that resistance and let it give way to both the opportunity, but the task of being able to serve a community who needs what it is that you have to offer. And so even in the rituals of my inauguration as president, I was pulled into the room by two children who then said before I even put on my academic, you know, regalia, et cetera, because it was always a reminder that even being a reluctant leader, that reluctance has to give way to an understanding that you have an asset that the community needs and wants, and you need to be able to serve the community in that particular way. And so that ritual was even baked into what it is that we did. But it's that level of presidency that was there, uh, or level of preparation, I should say, uh, of being that reluctant leader that I think helped to position me in a way that I could still try to produce excellence, but I really was coming as a servant leader, not to be served, but to serve as a senior academic administrator and chief executive. Digging into that reluctancy, since you said uh, before we came on that you had been approached about presidencies for quite a while and, and didn't take them, what ultimately got you over that hump and how important was the fact that it was uh, at an institution like that's part of the Cal State system, which is definitely has a, um, you know, a real mission orientation to those jobs and very, somewhat different from the research institutions that you'd uh, worked at before. Good question, Doug. 
I think when you are a senior executive, being a vice chancellor at the University of California, Irvine, puts you on the radar screen of folk. And you're getting nominated from people who know you administratively. There's some people who know you academically or through your research. So the nominations are coming from those places. And then once you get on the radar screen, you're just on the radar screen for these executive search firms who just come at you for positions that were in HBCUs, there were positions in Big Ten universities, there were positions in small regional comprehensives, they were you know, all over the country. But why this one? One, it was the nomination that I received from a couple of folk. Second, it was the fit. And the fit was both the Cal State University system, which by the way, is the largest system of public higher education in all of America, which I knew, even coming from a UC campus, which I knew was probably the number one research university in the world. But uh, it's a whole different culture in UC, I think, than it is in the Cal State. But also it was part and parcel to this Dominguez Hills campus, particularly, that has a demographic composition that is 87% students of color. It has, what, 66% Latinx kids at that time, second most probably in the whole state of California, about 12% Black folk. That's the largest percentage of African-American people of any public university in the state of California. About seven and a half percent Asian-American, maybe six percent Caucasian, uh, about three and a half percent multiracial. You've got less than three percent international. I mean, it's a multicultural mecca and a mix. But you've also got 66 percent first generation, 70 percent pale eligible and a number of students who despite having good grades and being seen as you eligible, are still not really prepared to manage the rigors of a university curriculum. This is the campus that needs what we know. This is a campus that has, you know, an expert faculty. It has, you know, tremendous staff, very committed and dedicated to helping to move the needle on the lives of these students. And so this was just a mission that was just a calling. It's not a job. It's not a career. It's not a title. It literally is a calling. And so when my wife and I decided to say, yes, let's, you know, we're going to go on and apply for this. um, It was really with that mindset that I approached the opportunity and was grateful to be selected by the trustees and the chancellor at that point, Tim White, to be the, uh, what is now the 11th president of California State University, Dominguez Hills. Well, that's thank you for sharing that. That's, I think, helpful perspective. And you and I first met at the Department of Education. Uh, they part- teamed up the White House to hold an event where they were convening leaders of institutions that are deeply committed to advancing real like systemic change for especially the students that we know have been historically failed by higher ed. So given that perspective of working with an institution that is truly truly diverse and truly uh, serving the the breadth of, I would say, representative ca- campus, like actually the, the depth and breadth of our country. What do you think needs to happen? I mean, I'm, I'm sure you have a million things that need to change in higher ed. I, I personally, you can't even generate a list. <laughs> it's so long. Is there one change that based on your perspective of being the leader of this institution that you're like, this is the thing that higher ed needs to shift right now? For me, you're right, Bridget. It's another great question. There's not one thing, but if I had to segregate out like the one thing you want to know, it would be an invitation for higher ed to take seriously what I think is this three-legged stool. Growing up in California, the California Master Plan always had a three-legged stool, excellence in academics and research, 
access to the California state citizenry and affordability, keeping education affordable. Right now, education has, you know, moved in a, in a, in a posture where we tout our worth as academic institutions by our selectivity ratios. Aren't we wonderful that we only accept the top three, four, five, 10% of folk? To me, education is not for the privileged or the few. It really should be the right of the many. And so providing that level of access to folk, I want to judge my worth at this point in my career, not by how selective I was at only taking the top whatever, but how inclusive I was at taking everybody who wants an education and could benefit from the intellectual resources that we have on the campus. So if I were inviting higher ed to take a serious look at that, which is what the Department of Education did in that uh, Raising the Bar Summit we were at, was really looking at, at that piece. And so for me, I judge it based upon the, the uh, economic and social mobility index and how many lives we are transforming. At California State University, Dominguez Hills, I coined a term when I came here that says, you know, Toros are T-squared. T-squared meaning we transform lives that transform America. That's what I ultimately want to do. I want to give access to people in the state as well as across the nation who want to come and study in this multicultural Mecca place and help them realize the full measure of their promise and possibility as they move forward in their um, academic and career endeavors. It's a good time maybe for us to pivot a little bit to you yourself as a, a leader more and had a lot of conversations on this uh, program and elsewhere about sort of how leaders have stayed engaged and enthused during what have been very difficult times for a lot of institutions, for a lot of people in higher ed and, and the sort of marathon that most of us have been running uh, for the last few years. What kinds of things are you doing personally now as a leader to help you continue to be able to lead and, and motivate and inspire many hundreds of people who are who you're leading, other professionals at the institution and staff and faculty? Staying engaged and inspired and committed to the mission for me has never been hard, but that's a, that's a good question, though. But I'm motivated by a few things. You know, first, I understand that ideas are the substance of behavior. So if you want to know why I behave in the way I do, just get up in my head and figure out what's the conceptual template that he's created. It, it is anchored in a couple of spaces. First, the great Algerian psychiatrist, Franz Fanon, argued that each generation out of relative obscurity must reach out and seek to fulfill its legacy or betray it. So I get up every day with the notion in my head of am I prepared to fulfill rather than betray the legacy that I've been blessed to inherit? Um, you're right that, that being a college president now or university uh, chief executive is, is a challenging position. And for all the good that we try to do, there are always allies and alligators that you have to navigate. And it's a tough position to be able to be in. But even time I feel like mm, things are tough, this is a crazy day, like, oh, uh, you know, life is kind of the ceiling's falling in. I always remember to contextualize struggle. And maybe our viewers can see probably the edge of my piece here. On this end here, I have pictures of both uh, Martin and Malcolm because, and on the other end of my office here, I have pictures of the ancestors and the slave dungeons. And it reminds me to always contextualize struggle. And if my ancestors could get me 
to this space and time. I owe a debt to generations of folk who made it possible for me to arrive at this particular space and time. It used to cost them their life to know how to read. But now all I have to do is deal with a little bit of inconvenience and a tough day because things aren't quite going right. It's that contextualizing that allows me to just center myself and really focus on the mission about what we're trying to do. And then it becomes much easier and, and, and much more sustainable for me. So some of that is just anchored in the cultural traditions that I represent and who I am as an individual. Can you say a little bit about how that bring that into your work each day? I mean, is it something that says conscious is looking at those pictures or, you know, I'm just curious how you sort of reinforce that when you wake up in the morning and how you try and bring it into the, the actual day-to-day work? Great question. So an invitation to be more pragmatic. So for me, if ideas are the substance of behavior, then the value system that comes out of my cultural worldview drives a lot of what I do. We live in a society that focuses more on the individual, but I come out of more of the collective survival. So if I'm making a decision about budget reductions, I'm thinking more, how do we reduce in everybody a little bit, not invite somebody to get it from the table because we can no longer feed you. You know, it's those kind of things that we do. When I'm thinking about my students and trying to focus on the least of these, when I think about my position as a president, that's why I'm so fond of really claiming that title of being a servant leader because I come to serve, not to be exalted or crowned as this president or chief executive. That's an interesting title that is what I do, but not necessarily who I am at the core of my being. So those are the things that make a difference. When I think about the way in which we try to work with students, try to provide them with the resources, the way we want to celebrate our faculty, I'm very clear when I go places as presidents get a lot of accolade too. I tell them that a real leader fundamentally is only as good as the work produced by the people who work with and for them. And one of the great surprises for me at Cal State University Dominguez Hills, which for years has been neglected, I think, by the state and even in some cases the system uh, of a California State University. One of the great surprises is I didn't have to invent excellence when I came. We certainly have tried to do some of that and produce excellence, but I simply had to uncover and reveal the excellence that was already here. And so that's one of the most exciting things that a chief executive can do is be able to highlight the tremendous faculty we have, the dedicated, committed staff, the you know, uh, students that we have. I mean, that's the really magic behind what we do. And it's really helping the community really understand it and embrace it. You know, the, from town gown relationships to celebrating excellence, to inviting corporations and other folks to come in and take a look at what we have on campus, to even being invited, as Bridget was talking about, by the Biden administration and the Secretary of Education to go and participate in that what was an invitation-only forum for certain institutions who were doing that critical and important work. I like being known for that, not our selectivity ratios. You shared a little bit about advice that you've been given, but I'm wondering if there's if there's any other touchstone piece of advice you rely upon that another person gave you um, that repeat most often. So I continue to mentor students at this age uh, who are in their own you know growth periods from freshmen at 17 to middle-aged folk who are going through their college careers, even at this latter stage of their lives. I try to mentor young professionals, but there are a couple pieces of advice I think that the great Joe White, who you see here, uh, provided me. First of all, he said to me, produce excellence, and excellence will bring you opportunity. 
And he told me one day, he said, you will not have to tell anybody how smart you are or how brilliant you, know, you think you can be. Just produce excellence and opportunity will come. So I tell people, produce excellence. I tell them the same advice I shared earlier, which is the key to mental health is always having a broad range of choices and options. I also come with a mindset of being an individual as a person of color who found it hard in some cases to see myself reflected in the academy in ways in which were very significant in the years that I came through. And I've been doing this a lot of years. But one of the things Joe White taught me, he said, be very careful about seeking validation from your oppressor. So if you have systems that oppress you, if you have people who oppress you, the problem is not that they have a critical opinion of you. The problem is that you give a darn about what they think in the first place. So as I'm thinking about that, and it isn't that you, you, you come with this negative chip on your shoulder, but you come with more of an affirmed sense of yourself, that you have a level of self-determination that you can engage in that allows you to define and frame the discourse about what ought to go on in situations or in your life. But also it allows you to have a more fundamental respect for the dignity and humanity of everybody who's a member of the human family which I think is, is what's fundamentally important. So I can be as celebrated in all of my African-centeredness, but be as good about celebrating someone for their being white, being Latino, being Asian, being Indian, being international, whatever it might be, being man, woman, heterosexual or not, you know, disability challenged or not, whatever it is, that's a demographic that describes you. But fundamentally, we're all human at the core. And that's what that allows us to be able to respect and represent. I love that. Yeah, your worth is not up for debate. That's that's really great advice. I guess the last question I wanted to ask, because we did chat about this prior, is uh, if there is a book that you recommend most frequently uh, that has been most useful to you as a leader. Hmm, good question. Yeah, I have a couple of those I, I like to recommend. So the first book that I like as an administrator that I found to be very helpful is uh, Collins's book on good to great. Really love that book, uh, embrace it a lot. It's very, it's got a good conceptual grounding and template, but it's very pragmatic too. So Collins, I think that an excellent book and I've referred that to lots of people. But I also love a book that was uh, done by John Hope Bryant. And if you haven't read John Hope Bryant, it's a book called Love Leadership. And the subtitle of the text, I might be getting wrong as I paraphrase this, but it's how to lead in a fear-based world. What he argues is that, you know, love works and fear fails. And there are a lot of people who get into leadership positions who lead by fear. The sky's falling, so you have to trust me. I'm the only one who can save it. I'm like, oh, well, and he's like, no. He's like, you know, being in those spaces is love leadership is what you need to do. And in some of that love, you've also got to be willing as a leader to be vulnerable. Vulnerability is where your power is. And that, that, that concept aligns so much, I think, with my own thinking as a psychologist, because as I was seeing patients for years and clients, I would oftentimes talk to them where they would come in in their most vulnerable states. And I should, you know, I, I argued with them in the same way that Cornel West argues with us to say that we should never allow misery to have the last word. So the fact that they were in my office really talking about their piece was great. But I also told them that you will never find out how strong you can be, Reginald Doug, until your moment of greatest vulnerability. Because strength is not measured at the zero line forward. 
Strength is measured when you got to go all the way back to a negative two, four, six, eight in your life and then come all the way back into this side to a positive eight. That's where you find out how strong you can be. And that was another principle that was reinforced in that book on love leadership that I think would serve administration as well. Uh, you will never find out how strong you can be, even as a university leader, until you get to your moment of greatest vulnerability. Oh, man, that's the best way to end. <laughs> that was so great. Thank you for sharing that real rich and deep wisdom. We're, we're getting some some love. And uh, you saw the, the comments that we're getting from folks uh, who are enjoying this. So thank you for sharing that. Um, I was just going to add that I don't know if you know that Good to Great has an, an addition, which is for the social sector that is for nonprofits and the, some of the stuff uh, for folks who struggle with making that connection between the private sector, that is another piece and it's a really short piece, but I, I love that. And I love the, especially a sector that if there was a cultural touchstone that we have most consistently, it would be scarcity or the perception of it, I think, which is totally connected to fear. Um, I think your advice is like the perfect way for us to end the day. And yep, we're hearing great stuff. Thank you for the comments. I'm glad. I'm glad. And, and even as everybody is now interested in being more culturally engaged, I'd also invite them to take a look at one of my favorite scholars, obviously, is Cornell Weston and his work. But also anything by him, uh, Race Matters, is a, is a great piece to do. But also I'd recommend Michael Eric Dyson's piece where he talks about uh, tears we cannot stop. And the subtitle of that is My Sermon to White America. And it's how we learn to give, live together and, and cross some of this racial divide that is so you know, uh, contaminating our country right now. And I think that if higher education has a role that is significant, is so that these issues become the topics of critical discourse and analysis that we talk about, but if anybody can get it right, we can in higher education as we try to help know the students we train, communities that we engage to how to learn how to better respect the dignity and humanity of our fellow human beings. Boom, mic drop moment. I love it. These are great. These are great recommendations. And we're so grateful for you spending the time with us today. And I feel like uh, I, it's it's always an opportunity to, to shine a light on leaders that you can tell. I'm going to see a lot more of you everywhere. I think folks really are looking for true leadership and true wisdom. And I think that you clearly have both. And so thank you for spending this time with us today. And Doug, thanks for, as always, for being an excellent co-host. And for those of you at home, we look forward to seeing you for our next episode.